all of these original Christmas films, the black and white ones, what we get in those films is, I think, a little bit more genuine just because they come straight out of the post-war era. They really earnestly capture what the Christmas spirit in cinema is all about. This is the cinema show on Monaco 24. Coming up, a feast of festive fun at the movies. This is not a festival. This is a fest, a festa, a celebration. If I was going to have make a festival, I would have said, no, thank you. I want to do something different. We celebrate films. We don't put films in competition. We're touching down in Rome to find out what the city's film festival is really all about. And... Scotland Yard is ever-present. It looms in the background of so many of his things. Everyone knows what Scotland Yard is. It's a very good point of reference. There's the police, and then if you see a sign of Scotland Yard, it's the police. No city does Christmas quite like London. We'll take a tour with someone who captured it better than anyone. Alfred Hitchcock. That's all to come on The Cinema Show on Monaco 24. Deck the hall with boughs of holly, fa-la-la-la-la, fa-la-la-la. Tis the season to be jolly, fa-la-la-la-la, fa-la-la-la. The carolers are singing, the Christmas bells are ringing. Welcome to Christmas on The Cinema Show, coming to you from Midori House in London. I'm Fernando Gusto Pacheco, sitting in for Ben Ryland this week. It's around this time of the year that cinemas just about everywhere start giving their festive favorites another rotation. So if you're like me and can't get enough of all that oversweetened, wholesome festive fun, then stay tuned. First up, though, we're touching down in Rome. When it comes down to Italian film festivals, Venice has really cornered the market. And despite being the Italian capital, one of the most visited cities on the planet and the home of Italy's famed Cinecittà Studios, Rome isn't exactly known as a place to premiere a film. But that hasn't dissuaded the organizers of the Rome Film Festival. We sent our Rome correspondent along to find out what the event is all about. My name is Antonio Monda and I'm the artistic director of the Rome Film Festival. I was appointed two years ago and I was just renewed for other three years. So I will run the festival for six years. And what are you trying to do with the Rome Film Festival? Do you feel there's a sort of mission about what you're doing? Is there a need for another film festival? What sets you apart from the other film festivals? There is no need for another festival. In fact, this is not a festival. This is a fest, a festa, a celebration. If I was going to have make a festival, I would have said, no, thank you. I want to do something different. We celebrate films. We don't put films in competition. Okay, so there's a cultural remit. But how do you kind of combine the industry necessities of this? Surely Rome is trying to be a film capital again, somewhere where you come and make and shoot films. So how are you kind of balancing that cultural and industry First of Mission. all, one of the shape of the festival, which was completely remade, is to give a lot of focus, a lot of attention to the encounters, the, the close encounters, named after Steven Spielberg, of course. Every night there is a major star on the stage with me. Second, we try to get the best quality of films. Last year we opened with Moonlight, which would eventually win the Oscars. And the second night we had Manchester by the Seal, also an Oscar winner. This year we have Detroit, and I'm sure it will be very strong at the Oscars. Last Flag Flying, stronger, and many, many others. So the only criterion that I have is 
selection and quality. One of the main differences between this fest and all the other festivals is that the talents come here to enjoy and share, not to promote films. That was the suitably flamboyant artistic director of the Rome Film Festival, or FEST, Antonio Monda there, telling us what sets this cinematic event that is now in its 12th year apart from the rest. With the striking architecture of Renzo Piano's Auditorium Parco della Musica as an apt venue, this festival has been hosting a whole series of screenings, talks and other events that together make a very hefty book-like programme. The auditorium's red carpet has seen the likes of actors Jake Gyllenhaal and Christoph Waltz, as well as directors like David Lynch and rising star Xavier Dolan. But as the artistic director was telling us, Rome is not trying to be a trophy pickup point on the global festival circuit. Using the crucial selling point of Rome and all the rich cinematic tradition this city offers, Rome Filmfest does not struggle to attract big names and hopefully attention and investment in contemporary filmmaking too. First up, I spoke to director Marco Spagnoli at the premiere of his documentary film The Italian Jobs, Paramount Pictures and Italy. As the title suggests, the film charts the deep relationship that was fostered between this legendary Hollywood studio and Italy during the golden age of Italian cinema in the 1950s and 60s. Films such as William Wyler's 1953 Roman Holiday, starring Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. A still of this timeless classic was in fact chosen as the Rome Festival's poster this year. Un'avventura meravigliosa lunga oltre un secolo, un racconto tra l'Italia e l'America su come il cinema italiano e quello hollywoodiano siano riusciti a stabilire una collaborazione senza precedenti. It's a story how this major work in Italy and the Italians that work in this major in Hollywood and in Europe in order to make it great and to make, produce many of the movies we saw we love. And in many ways, what struck me was that it's an untold story. People kind of take some of these wonderful films for granted. They're very much part of our visual history, uh, people who love Italy and so on. But you really analysed how that came about. Why do you think there's that interest now? Why are we revisiting this right now? Do you think there's a moment going on vis-à-vis Italian film now? What's happening currently? I think that uh, cinema on cinema is very important nowadays because the best way to talk about movies is uh, making movies themselves in order to show the moving images. What what is very interesting is the fact that cinema is 100 years and 20 old. So what happened is that this type of movies need to be told. And also what's more important now is what how the people, they made it, why they made it, why they made it this way. And what are the social, political and moral, even sometimes, implications of these movies. And, and you mentioned those uh, social, political, historical factors. That was another fascinating element, the involvement of Paramount in Italy during the Cold War and so on. That must have been a quite tricky thing to convey as a film, as a director, to, to put the story together. But 
you managed somehow what was your kind of guiding you know because otherwise you could get bogged down in history the, there was mention of the Marshall Plan the history that was happening in Italy at that, at that time how did you kind of navigate your way through that without getting bogged down cinema is strongly influenced by what, what's going on especially in those days some historians consider Roman Holiday the greatest operation of CIA in Italy in fact Roman Holiday should have been directed and produced in Hollywood and not in Rome but then somehow the people we are talking about Luigi Luraschi Pila de Levi decided to bring this production in Rome and make it the greatest contribution of Paramount to the Cold War. I think that these guys, maybe, I don't know how much they were aware of that, but they fought the Cold War on the red carpet. That was Marco Spagnoli there, talking about his documentary, The Italian Jobs, Paramount Pictures and Italy, which premiered here at the 2017 Rome Film Festival. As we are in the Eternal City, it seems inevitable that attention tends to be drawn towards the city's great cinematic tradition in the past. But being able to celebrate that history and draw in the public interest and industry involvement that is needed to get a film project up and running is no bad thing. Next, I go to the local film commission to find out what the Italian capital is doing to attract filmmakers. We are in the space of Rome Lazio Food Commission at the Rome Film Festival and I'm Cristina Priarone, General Manager of Rome Lazio Food Commission. And what do you think if we look at where Rome and the region is placing itself, do you feel that, that there's a sort of renewed push really to take advantage of Rome? Do you think there's a new golden age? Is that what you're trying to <laughs> promote? That's the feeling I get from the festival in general. What efforts are you making particularly? Is there a more investment coming from government and so on? Do you have more resources than there were once? Absolutely. We have more resources and also we have, I think, a new way to work all together. We are very linked, the regional level, because in Italy we have different funds in the different regions. We, as Lazio region, the region around Rome, we have a very large fund for audiovisual because we have 23 million euro per year. So actually we are the second or third region of Europe. So it's a good thing. And also, on national level, we have a very good tax credit law. So since two or three years, many U.S. big production again come shooting in Italy. For example, Spectre with 007, we help them very much to be here, and also other big production. So regional funds, national tax credit and a new way to work together. This is the right mix, I think. We are, let me say, in a very successful phase. That was Cristina Prieroni, General Manager of the Rome Lazio Film Commission, telling us why now is a good time to make a film in Rome and its region. So could we be seeing another golden age in Roman cinema? But given the sizeable crowds and star-filled programme here at the Rome Film Festival this year, the buzz that is a prerequisite of such events is impossible to ignore. For Monocle, in Rome, I'm David Pleasant. Thank you, David. Still to come, no city does Christmas quite like London, and no filmmaker captured it, the city quite like Alfred Hitchcock. 
We'll take a tour soon. But first, a word from the news desk. Amazon Studios has secured the rights to the era-spanning drama Life Itself, featuring Oscar Isaac, Olivia Wilde, Annette Bening, Samuel L. Jackson, and Antonio Banderas. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the ensemble drama, written and directed by Dan Fogelman, is a multi-generational love story in which several characters are connected over the course of decades, from the streets of New York to the Spanish countryside. Amazon officially moved into the field of distribution with Woody Allen's new film, Wonder Wheel, a departure from their previous strategy of partnering with traditional distributors. Meanwhile, the British theatre chain Cineworld is set to acquire the US-based Regal Entertainment Group in a deal worth $3.6 billion. According to a statement reported by Variety, the acquisition will create a globally diversified cinema operator across 10 countries and allow Cineworld to access the attractive North American cinema market. And this week, movie subscribers can catch the classic 1984 film Once Upon a Time in America from renowned Italian master Sergio Leone. There's also the spectacular scenery of Michael Semino's 1996 film The Sun Chaser and a special movie discovery, 2015's Under Electric Clouds, which presents a vision of futuristic Russia via a series of seven vignettes telling the story of an unfinished building and its potentially mad architect. Catch a month of movies for free by heading to movie.com slash monocle. That's M-U-B-I slash monocle. This is a special festive edition of the Cinema Show. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now, if all the hustle and bustle of Christmas shopping has got you feeling a little worn out, perhaps a festive film will help. Here is a friend of the Cinema Show, critic Tara Judah, speaking to Ben Ryland about some of her favorite picks. What is that? What are you doing? What is that? What are you doing? You're taking all the caviar? That caviar is a garnish. The reason I came into your store is because I was spending the day with Annabelle and Matt, and I was buying them presents. I'm the type of guy who likes to buy his way into the hearts of children who are his relatives. There's only one place to find a children's book in the neighborhood. I, that will not always be the case. And it was yours, and it is a, a charming little bookstore. You probably sell, what, $350,000 worth of books in a year? How did you know that? I'm in the book business. I am in the book business. A postcard-perfect picture of New York at Christmas with Meg Ryan. In a 90s romantic comedy, it is, of course, You've Got Mail, directed by the late, great Nora Ephron and based upon the 1940 film by Ernst Lubitsch, The Shop Around the Corner, which was itself based on a 1937 Hungarian play called Parfumery by Miklos Laszlo. Tara, it's all froth and fun, isn't it? I don't hate the film, but there is something about those romantic comedies, Sleepless in Seattle, When Harry Met Sally, there's a series of those types of romantic comedies that I'm not really into. I think that they give a false suggestion of female empowerment. I don't really find them honest in the way that they try and equate the sexuality between the two characters. And I know that that's the thing that other people really do like about these films often, is that they feel like the females get a better centre in these movies than some of the others. I would add to that list, though, 
the films that I also am not super into. So for any real romantics, you're going to be disappointed. I don't love The Holiday with Cameron Diaz and... <laughs> Nobody loves that movie. <laughs> oh, the... Except my mother. Sorry, Mum. <laughs> there is there is a, a horde of people who enjoy it. Love Actually, I'm not at all a fan of. Oh, God, no. Yeah, it's a terrible film and there's a number of great articles online about why it's so bad, so we won't go into that here. Exactly. Also, the films like Bridget Jones's Diary, which, you know, these kind of... Films that really it's wallow in sentimentality. It's in me. That's on my list. What are you doing to me, Tara? <laughs> I'm sorry, but I do like the original types of films that they reference, which is things like Shop Around the Corner, It's a Wonderful yes. Life, Holiday Inn, you know, all of these original kind of romantic Christmas films, the black and white ones. And the reason I like them is not because they're black and white and I'm a colour movie snob, but it's <laughs> it's actually more because what we get in those films is, I think, a little bit more genuine just because they come straight out of the post-war era. And mm. those films, are they really earnestly capture what the Christmas spirit in cinema is all about. I mean, this is where, I mean, the history of Christmas on cinema goes all the way back to 1898 with a short film called Santa Claus, which you can watch on YouTube if you're interested. So it's a little bit spooky, actually. It is. I, maybe it's something about being an old black and white silent movie, but it's just something. There's something about the jerky movements of Santa Claus creeping into the house that just that screams to me home invasion, not Christmas morning. I <laughs> see. I think it's the real stockings that are actually like probably quite dirty. I imagine in 1898 they probably weren't that clean. No, <laughs> that's the bit that's a bit creepy for me. But we've got this. Great Grand tradition of visual trickery, illusion, excitement, the Christmas spirit. But I think what we get by the time we get to post-war era, where we start to see American movies particularly, taking on this genre and making it into something else, and why some of these romantic films particularly become Christmas films, is because they're about the idea of hope and heteronormativity. And I, I mean, you know, I'm not saying heteronormativity is a good thing, but we have to discuss it if we're talking about Christmas films. Absolutely, about romantic comedies in general. It comes into all of them because Mm. that is really post-war what America is looking for on screen is this promise of the future again and that comes down to procreation and children. Come on now, it isn't as bad as that. I'd forgotten how much that woman hates me and how much I hate her. That's a terrible thing to say, isn't it? Ever since I was little, she was always so right and I was always so wrong. Remember the Night is a 1940 film from director Mitchell Leeson and the legendary filmmaker Preston Sturges, serving here as screenwriter for the last time before he made the leap into the director's chair. The film opens in New York during the Christmas shopping rush with Barbara Stanwyck playing a shoplifter who, after getting caught, eventually finds herself spending an unlikely Christmas with the family of the district attorney. Tara, this is such a lovely life-affirming story, isn't it? It is. And actually, there's also a contemporary remake of this with Mark Ruffalo, and I think it's Mary Stuart Masterson set in up in New York. And she's got a little, actually, it's slightly different, but it's a sim, it's pretty much the same film. She has a daughter. They're a klepto duo, and they steal things, and then she gets caught and sentenced to spend the holidays with him because they can't they can't put her in jail and they can't have a trial or whatever over the holidays. It's a really ridiculous premise, but a, a very similar story. And it's the same 
thing. And I actually like the contemporary remake as well. I, I, I mean, I love Barbara Stanwyck. We'll get to how amazing she is in just a second. She really is wonderful. But what I like about that story is, again, it's this idea of putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. The really successful Christmas films always do that. They ask you to view things slightly differently and to think about the less fortunate at this time of year. Those are really the best films. Like, what is it that we, we are talking about at this time of year? Like, how, how much we matter to other people and we can help them what it's like for people who are less fortunate than ourselves and how maybe we could do something to make that a little bit better or just be a bit more compassionate in our everyday lives. But Barbara Stanwyck is an absolute powerhouse. I think she's one of the most magnificent melodrama stars. I love watching her. And I say one of the things that I find a bit difficult with this pairing, though, is that I think McMurray's a little soft for her. He doesn't quite have... I mean, I don't know who would. I'm not sure who I need to see sparring against her to be completely won over by them as a duo. I'm not sure... I'm not sure if he's a, he's a lovable rogue, like he's kind of got this teddy bear look going on, but I just, I don't think he's fiery enough for her. Well, that's what I find so fascinating about Barbara Stanwyck, though, is that when we say that she's, uh, she's a very strong actress, she's, she plays very strong characters, not always, because the magic part about her performance, when you compare her to someone like Joan Crawford or Betty Davis mm-hmm. and so on, these these very, very strong domineering women, None of those people that we think of of this era had the same ability to also simultaneously communicate fragility. And that's what I find is the key to her success. No matter what film you're watching her in, there's always this this ability for her to communicate these these very, very subtle flaws, these subtle human flaws, just with the way that she might say something or an expression on her face. She does it not with words, but with actions. And that seems to me like like a very modern style of acting. I, I, to be honest, I, I watch her with with Fred McMurray in the many pairings that they had together, and I I can't fault any of the times that I've seen them on screen together. Yeah, maybe maybe I'm being a bit harsh on Mr. McMurray. He's he's all right. He's, <laughs> he's okay. all right. Um, also, just as a, a kind of tip to anyone who loves Barbara Stanwyck as a little exercise, is to watch a Barbara Stanwyck film and take your eyes off the screen for a while and imagine Kathleen Turner because they kind of have the same voice. No. Yes. Is that, is that true? And then you can watch films like Serial Mom and imagine it's Barbara Stanwyck, which <laughs> gives a whole new dimension entirely. That's incredible. I'm going to do that immediately. Tara Judah there with Ben Ryland. Very few cities embrace the festive season with as much charm as London. Even fewer filmmakers have captured this fine metropolis as masterfully as Alfred Hitchcock. Whether he's stranded in a dark, nondescript ocean in 1944's Lifeboat or dangling us from atop the Statue of Liberty in 1942's Saboteur, a key part of Hitchcock's trickery is making us believe the illusory action taking place in those familiar settings. London, of course, held a special place for the director. He was born in the city's east and made his first films here. A giant sculpture of his head now stands at the old Gainsborough's studios, where he made, among others, The Lady Vanishes and The Lodger. So let us take you on a short tour of Hitchcock's London now, courtesy of writer Ivan Redford. <laughs>
I suppose actually the best place to start would be with his final film that he made in London and he did his, his, his final film, uh, Frenzy, which was a homecoming for him after he left us for America. Not that we're bitter about that. Uh, and it opens with this helicopter shot that flies all the way down the River Thames goes through Tower Bridge, which they opened up especially for the filming of that sequence, and it's it's iconic. It's uh, it's easy to kind of forget alongside some of the other London landmarks that appear in his films. But uh, if you if you want a starting place, head to the Thames. You're in a Hitchcock film. It's vibrant. It's in colour because a lot of his films that were set in London before they were made at a time when everything was in black and white. So the the kind of the blue of the Thames, the Tower Bridge, everything's very vibrant. And it's telling that the first thing he does is swoop in straight to the South Bank, where you have a man delivering a speech, and at the same time, a dead body washes up on the shore. So it's still the same London, he's almost saying, as in, it looks different, it's grown up a bit, it's a bit more impressive to look at visually, but still it's the crime-ridden, seedy London that he did love, you know, decades before. Scotland Yard is, uh, is kind of ever-present. It, uh, it looms in the background of so many of his things. Everyone knows what Scotland Yard is. It's a very good point of reference. There's the police, and then if you see a sign of Scotland Yard, it's the police. And so interestingly in Frenzy, he kind of has this recurring motif of always having a shot of the sign of Scotland Yard in, in films where the police are involved. And in Frenzy, it's New Scotland Yard, and it's the, uh, the spinning triangular sign that rotates that, that looks very impressive. Whereas in kind of earlier films such as, say, uh, The Lodger uh, in 1927, that's kind of a, a small little sign. It's, uh, it's kind of lit by a little pokey thing. It's a bit foggy. It's, it's an interesting way to kind of jump out and look into his different films. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Royal Albert Hall. Tonight it is my privilege to introduce you to one of the greatest swingers of uh, I would say the next place is the Royal Albert Hall. There's, I don't know if you saw the recent Mission Impossible film, uh, but there's a sequence in that, uh, in the Vienna Opera House where someone is about to be assassinated and Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt is there and they're all trying to stop this and it's happening at a very particular moment in the music when there's this big climax of loud So that was in 1934 he made that, and it's about a plot to assassinate an ambassador and a man and a woman try to, to thwart this happening. And then he remade the film about 20 years later and did exactly the same thing and had the climax again in the Royal Albert Hall. So he really liked that building. The first time around, he, uh, he sent a team of people to photograph it in detail uh, and, and replicated that on, on set. So the, the climax happens, someone tries to fire, I won't say what happens exactly, but then we whisked away to a siege that happened somewhere else, which actually is based on another kind of notable London historical event. He, he loves kind of pointing out these little kind of references that people can recognise. In the remake, he's allowed access to the building, and he's back with a vengeance. He, uh, he starts off the film with a sequence in the concert hall room, so that you can see the orchestra playing, almost as if to say, this is where we're going. And the actual climax sees the James Stewart character have a kind of a punch-up in the box with the guy holding the gun, which doesn't happen in the original. 
and then the assassin actually tumbles off of the balcony <laughs> several floors down in the middle of the Albert Hall, which is, uh, frankly, it's astonishing, really, uh, that they allowed him to do that. So he was, he was clearly revelling in the chance to, uh, to use the building to its full potential. Good morning, passengers. Welcome to the London Underground. We're now approaching Russell Square Station. I lie here for the British Museum, and please mind the gap. Here we are looking back to one of his early films from 1929, Blackmail, which is a, it's a personal favourite. It's interesting because it was a film that was made twice almost. There were, there were two versions. There was a silent version and there was a sound version. So this is kind of the film that was on the brink of Hitchcock experimenting with new techniques. But at the same time, there's still this recognisable honing in on familiar landmarks. So the film uh, climaxes with a chase across the roof of the British Museum. which is it's astonishing to witness. And then they actually fall down through the glass ceiling over the top of the museum into the building and then run around inside. But remarkably, there's no, there's no footage again, like the Albert Hall. He didn't have the access to the inside of the building. There's no actual footage that they shot in those corridors. But he was using, in the same way that he was using sound, he was using modern trickery to make it look like they were there. So we had photos projected onto mirrors that were all in the background with kind of holes for doors and things like that. So you could swear that they were just running around the empty place at night. Thank you, Ivan. That's all for this week. Ben Ryland is back in the chair next week. Today's show was edited and mixed by Christy Evans, and we leave you now with a classic Christmas track, which had its debut in the much-loved 1944 film Meet Me in San Luis. It has, of course, been re-recorded by many artists over the years, often with slightly different lyrics, but nothing quite beats the original, as performed by Judy Garland. Here it is. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Bye for now. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year all